and welcome to Serial Casting. This is the podcast for podiatrists produced by Orthopaedic Research UK in association with the Royal College of Podiatry in London. I'm Gavin Spence, paediatric orthopaedic surgeon, was in Dubai, now based in London, and I'm very pleased to say my friend and colleague, official colleague this time, Michaelis Kokonakis is joining us. And um, Michaelis, you were, were just before we joined on this call. You were very excited about a call you've just had preparing for one of the webinars you're going to be doing in the upcoming series with the Royal College of Podiatry, weren't you? We are, but I'm also very excited that you're going to be formally my colleague at the Evelina London Children's Hospital, which is fantastic. And that will open up a lot of um, ways how we can collaborate, not uh, between ourselves, but also uh, interdisciplinary collaboration. And here is um, today's uh, guest, uh, Stuart, Dr. Stuart Morrison, podiatrist, but also senior lecturer at King's College London. And we're going to have very interesting topics to discuss. One of them is going to be collaboration between the uh, podiatrists and uh, orthopedic surgeons and potentially physiotherapists within our profession. Hello, Stuart. Welcome. Hi, Michaelis. Hi, Gavin. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, Stuart, many people will probably know you within the podiatry profession because your publication list goes on and on and on and on. But for those who may not have heard of you, can you tell us a little bit about your role, what it involves, and perhaps a little bit about your training to date and how you ended up with with an academic role like that? Yeah, of course. Um, So I'm currently a senior lecturer at King's College London. Prior to that, I was based at the University of Brighton, where I was teaching on the podiatry programme. Prior to that, I was at the University of East London, which was my first academic job post-PhD. I think when I was studying in my third or fourth year at university, we were really encouraged to think or to think independently to challenge what we're doing out there in clinical practice. And that really triggered my interest in, in research. So when I finished my undergraduate degree, I had lots of questions that I wanted answered, which led me to the PhD pathway. And then, of course, that led me into academia and higher education, where I've been since completing my PhD. So is research your first love or education or you kind of enjoy both? I enjoy both, but I think research tips the the education. And that's one of the drivers why I I changed universities recently. So at Brighton, I was teaching on the production programme and education was my primary role. I'm now teaching on the physiotherapy programme at King's College London. And I've got a more equal balance of, of teaching and research. So that's very, very interesting. How do you find, do you find any big differences teaching podiatrists, which you have a great experience of before, and now teaching physiotherapists? Because obviously you talk, you, you're teaching about the same kind of topic, but to different audience. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I've been just past one year in this new role. So there's been lots of time to reflect upon the, the differences. And um, one of the things I noticed is that the pathway into podiatry is slightly different to those that go into physiotherapy. On the podiatry degree programmes, there's lots of or more non-traditional entry students. Um, That might involve people changing careers. It might involve more mature students. From the physiotherapy side, I think it's interesting to have a look at the programme and to see where there are the similarities and and also the the differences. Um, I'm very pleased to say that there is representation of the feet on the the physiotherapy programme. So I've definitely found a a comfortable space to be. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, 
I increasingly wonder whether these divisions that we have between our different specialties are somewhat artificial. I mean, we see it a lot in surgery. For example, there used to be orthopedic surgeons who did spinal surgery and neurosurgeons who were interested in the spine. And actually what has come is a whole different specialty of spinal surgery, which takes from both those disciplines. Same with hand surgery. Hand surgery has bits of orthopedics and a bit of plastics. Actually, what you want is a surgeon who has all of that skill set. Do you think podiatry and, and physiotherapy and maybe others? I mean, orthotists would be another obvious example. You're all basically going to fuse into a new kind of foot, foot therapy specialty in time. Yes, yeah, interesting perspective. I think when I look at the types of placements that physiotherapists do on the degree program, what pathways they have post-qualification, I think there's a lot of work and diversification that's needed in the podiatry world to unleash our potential to develop our skill set and, I guess, be more visible in the, the healthcare services because I think we're still quite under the radar, particularly in certain specialities like paediatrics. Obviously, the in the world of wound care and diabetes, there's much more recognition of the skills of, of the podiatrist, but um, I don't think that's universally recognised. Yeah, 100%. That, that is one of the motivations for the course and the podcast, all this stuff we're doing, because Michaelis and I have, we're starting to gain the knowledge, but we have very little experience of working with podiatry. Our foot and ankle surgery colleagues are much more familiar with it. And, uh, you know, I mentioned in the previous podcast, one, one of my foot and ankle surgery colleagues has pointed out that all of the major innovations in surgery has come from the world of podiatry, not from orthopedic surgery. So with that in mind, I think we're, we're keen to learn. Absolutely. So so also, I need to, uh, I completely forgot about this. That was your first question, Gavin, about the uh, the first webinar of the Orthopedic Research UK and Royal College of Podiatrists online uh, six weeks course, where we have actually Stuart uh, as our guest speaker. It's going to be on the 12th of June on Monday evening, and we're going to be discussing about flat food deformities, about principles and so on. So if uh, any of the audience are interested in this, please go to the Orthopedic Research UK or uh, Royal College of Podiatry website and uh, book yourself a space on it. And I'm really looking forward to this, Stuart. We have done previous webinars with podiatrists, and uh, we found it extremely mutually helpful. Uh, one of these webinars was with your co-researcher, Kylie Williams, a professor of podiatry from Australia, that you've been doing uh, research together before. And one of the striking projects that you've done was this Delphi consensus. And I'm only mentioning this because, as Gavin mentioned, this is now the time to collaborate and we can see it on different levels. So I co-chair uh, at BISCOS, the British Society for Children Orthopedic Surgeons, a committee where we plan to do a Delphi consensus about flat feet. And we decided that it should be interdisciplinary. So we have orthotist uh, representatives, we have physiotherapy representatives, adult foot and ankle surgeons, and you are representing the Royal College of Podiatry. You want to tell us a bit more about the project, the Delphi consensus group that you've done before, uh, that specific project, but in general, tell us about the Delphi consensus. What is this and why is becoming very popular nowadays in topics where we don't have a lot of robust evidence available? Yeah, absolutely. I think certainly in a topic like flat feet, there's such complexities out there in the, the evidence. I think these are complexities that don't need to exist 
But we do recognise that there are multiple professionals involved in responding to and treating this condition, if we can call it that. So I think the Delphi consensus is, is a good way to try and steer some clarity around the topic area and also to standardise what people are doing, because that's something that's much needed. I think Kylie and I have done a couple of Delphi activities, one around paediatric curriculum. So we were quite interested to try and map the curriculum across Australia, the UK and other countries to try and understand a bit more about what we're delivering to our undergraduate students, what the content looks like and what what the priorities need to be. And there's, I guess, one of the key concerns or, or the key findings from that work was the differences in the number of hours spent looking at paediatrics and across the, the country. So if I remember correctly, in the UK, we're doing something around six hours across a, a three-year degree programme, whereas in Australia, the the hours were up 20 plus hours. So a real stark difference there in what we're teaching students. Uh, and the Delphi work related to that was to try and identify a consensus of what we think is important. The idea being that if we did that, we could drive some standardisation across the UK to ensure that students graduating with a degree in podiatry all have a baseline skill set. Obviously, that can't just stop at Delphi and there's a lot more implementation that needs to be done to transition that and to make these findings meaningful. I don't think we've managed to crack that one yet, but it's certainly a bit of work that we're keen to continue progressing. And I guess this is about raising the standards of the workforce and ensuring those that are graduating have the appropriate skill set to see a child in clinical practice and and then to recognise what they need or don't need to do for the for the child that's come to see them. How does a, a Delphi process work exactly, Stuart? I mean, well, what what are the principles? I guess the key thing you need to start with is recognising what it is you want to um, determine consensus on. So uh, some preparatory work in, I guess, recognising what's known on the topic, who the key professionals are that you want to involve in in the development of your consensus activity. That then leads to the implementation of the, the Delphi technique or the Delphi methods, there are some modifications I'm aware of that have been done to slightly adjust the, the methods. But I guess ultimately we're, we're looking to gain agreement on what's important or what needs to be done on a particular topic. So in the case that Michalis mentioned, I think this was about standardising the treatment for children with um, symptomatic flat feet. You said there are complexities in this subject that don't need to exist. What are you referring to there? Are you saying that the previous research has been done poorly and has confused things? Is, is that what you're driving at? Yeah, I think so. One of the key problems I find with the existing evidence is that a lot of the studies out there have been conducted on children with pes planus. So to me, and I guess I can drill down into the detail, but I think one of the problems is that a lot of people view pes planus to be a problem. But what we're dealing with when we say pes planus is purely a variant of of foot shape. And many of the studies don't have what to me is fundamentally important, which is the symptomatic component. So symptomatic pes planus is something we would intervene and respond to. 
but PES plainness without symptoms is unlikely to warrant any intervention. That's not a particularly new argument, but we don't seem to have shifted in our approach to how we respond to children with flat feet. So obviously we can we can gain clarity with research that it's done properly and that's where you know guys like you are, are, are absolutely in the vanguard and boy have things changed since I was a lad you know I always feel slightly embarrassed talking to guys like you <laughs> think about the kind of research noddy research projects we used to do but you know thank thank goodness the professionals are now out there but then you have to communicate that message don't you I mean do you consider that part of your role I'm, I'm just curious because there's a there's an orthopedic professor up in Liverpool Dan Perry Michalis you know him well and I've, I've noticed that not only is his research gold standard but he he's very good at having a machine to communicate those results i see it on social media i see little mini videos with key messages it's really it's really interesting to me that he or i assume he or the rest of his team consider important to communicate those findings because it's a whole different challenge isn't it i mean is is that part of your role yeah it's part of the role and i think it's a very important part of the role on one level, if you're trying to get your findings out to busy clinicians, then you're going to need to have a, a strategy that allows key messages to be shared with the, the wider audience. But I also think it's important when it comes to dissemination that our findings reach the people that we've been researching. So the patients that come into our clinical services or the people that we involve in research projects we shouldn't be ignoring their needs to hear about the findings from our work. There's some real nice shifts in the landscape. There's a journal that's written for children and young people. So you can distill research papers down to a younger audience, which is really quite novel. But I guess with the powers of social media, we're seeing a lot of infographics and more innovative ways to get findings out to people. They're not always easy to do, but I guess it's about working with the right people who've got the skills to help with your knowledge translation. I think also at the same time, Stuart, you know, keeping it within a formal, under the umbrella of a formal society always helps because all the members, we get that, which is the actual professionals who, for example, deal with flat feet, for example, in our case, like BISCOS and the Royal College of Podiatry and so on. So. Um, there's so, lots of different ways, but certainly dissemination of the uh, the messages are very, very important nowadays through different ways. You're doing a lot of research, Stuart. Tell us about uh, the uh, the project that you recently, you were talking uh, to us about this just before we started, and you're very proud of this, and you think it's going to have a very significant impact. So tell us a bit more about it. Yeah, so the current project I'm working on is a study funded by NIHR Research for Patient Benefit, and it's a study which is looking at primary care encounters for foot and ankle problems. So essentially, we're trying to understand what are the foot problems that children and young people present with to their GP? We're using the Clinical Practice Research Data Link, which is a UK-wide online medical record database. So we've got data for around 400,000 children over the last uh, six years, and we're able to categorise that data and look at what is it that children take to their GP 
And we're also trying to link that data into secondary care services. So where do they go to after they've seen their GP and what interventions do they receive? On paper, that sounds very easy to do, but it's a very data heavy project and really complicated one to unpick. But this is where our collaborations are important and working with some very good project collaborators and data scientists are really helping us to make this a lot more easier than than it would be otherwise. So we're at this stage with this work where we've coded all the data. We recognize what the key categories or the, the main topics, the main reasons why children go to their GP. We've got that all linked up to secondary care and now we're just trying to make sense of it all. It comes as no surprise that in that top three list, MSK conditions are common reason for children going to their GP. That does come as no surprise, and it it is um, it reminds me of some of the data on consultations for normal variants, physiological conditions that children will present with the concerned parents, but are actually part of normal development. And it would appear that many general practitioners are, particularly in the early stages of their career, are quite uncomfortable dealing with that kind of stuff because they just don't have the training. Because orthopedics is not considered to be a key part of our curriculum as training doctors. For reasons I don't, I didn't always escape me considering how many of us there are and how important musculoskeletal conditions are. And pediatrics is only a tiny part of that. And, you know, one of my bugbears is that it's just, it's, pediatrics is just for kids. It's just children. It's really not that important. You know, I've, I've, I don't know if that's something that a message that's without wanting to preempt your results, but is that, is that a, a feeling you get as well that pediatrics just not high enough up the priority list? Absolutely. I think the current wave is to ensure that people who need healthcare services get to the right person as soon as possible. And we're hoping that this data might help to reduce or to start a conversation that might lead to a reduction in the workload for GPs. You're right, Gavin, paediatrics isn't a priority, but prevention is a priority. And I guess we need to intervene as, as early as possible to reduce the long-term impact or, or burden of, of foot pain and, and problems on children. There is some evidence, some literature that has mapped paediatric content on the, the medicine degree programme. And I guess it's a similar situation where it's difficult to do everything. Um, so definitely I need to think about, I guess, the current model of health service delivery. And that does not necessarily need to be through a GP initially right they don't need to be the gatekeepers i think this is this is what we are finding in in our practice it's changed a lot hasn't it michaelis for us we use the services of uh, particularly nurse specialists advanced practice physiotherapists podiatrists probably could be part of that you know we don't need to be the first port of call it's much more efficient if we diversify the sort of healthcare professionals that patients can have their first contact with i think just before the our podcast, I had other meetings about other webinars about the same course where I found out things that I wasn't aware of. So we have both physiotherapists and orthopedic surgeons and rheumatology doctors and podiatrists, for example, triaging referrals from the community of GPs for children with hypermobility and fit symptoms. And I presume these four different professions can be gatekeepers. We, as you said, uh, Gavin, we certainly have uh, physiotherapy advanced practitioners doing the, you know, doing triage clinics. There's no reason why podiatrists cannot do the same thing. And I'm sure there are out there uh, people who do that. And we can only 
learn about this. We can present research work like stewards can be hopefully by even with our podcast. This is a dissemination of of your preliminary results, and then one it, it is out there. People can have in their clinical practice different models, trying to reduce the the workload of GPs and trying to create new new models to make the uh, the services to the pediatric population and to adults uh, more efficient. Stuart, I wanted to ask you, you, you told us about this project and the you know, impressive data sets that are now possible through electronic records. We could never dream of getting nearly half a million kids into a database before. Do you see this getting better and better? What, what do you see as the future for a researcher like you? Are, are these good times for you guys because of technology? Has this really changed the game for you? I think it has. I mean, part of the game changer has been more opportunities for research funding that AHPs can bid for. That's been a real change over the last five, ten plus years. The technological advances are are really quite promising. Um, If we look at some of the potential uses of things like three-dimensional scanners, 3D motion capture, that's not particularly new. It's been around for, for many years, but I guess these are all systems that allow us to understand a lot more about, I guess, MSK structure, MSK function, and its association with or the pathways to how problems develop. So it is very exciting. What I think is a bit of a block, we're not seeing the translation or the uptake of that technologies in practice for lots of reasons. Um, And that's going to be I think the key barrier to helping really to change what's happening out there in the real world. What sort of reasons? I mean, give us an idea. Well, I guess things like your motion capture systems are expensive. Mm. They're technical, so they require time, energy and effort to, to maintain, run and then interpret the data. And I guess if you're working in the NHS and you're seeing patients with 20, 30 minute appointments, there isn't time to even set somebody up to to record that type of data. So I guess we do need to think about efficiencies in our practice and changing things as best we can do. How that can be done is, I guess, quite a, a complex one to, to unpick. But there's definitely benefits to integrating more technology and, and using that to capture more precise data and, I guess, lead to hopefully better outcomes. I mean, motion capture is a very good example because, Michaelis, where you're working at the moment, you have access to a to all singing, all dancing, gate lab, Vicon system, videos, force plates, lovely, state of the art, but it's very, very time consuming. And the data is very, very helpful for cl- clinical decision making, but that needs to be resourced or we need to spend more time getting that kind of quality data. We need to think carefully about all the time that is perhaps wasted in clinical practice. I think one more thing which is very important, uh, Stuart and Gavin, is connectivity. So we also do try different headsets like augmented reality, virtual reality headsets. I've been to uh, recent tech international conferences. Connectivity is going to be the A and Z. We're moving to an era where it's not everything about hardware anymore. The hardware becomes smaller and smaller, like headsets, Googles, you know, glasses, whatever, maybe chips, God knows, okay? But it's, got, it's all about software and connectivity, so 5G. So institutions and facilities that have 5G interconnectivity is very, very important. I currently have a, a quite expensive Microsoft headset, but the connectivity, the, the signal is just so bad that it's just useless. The technology is really useful. 
will offer lots of benefits, but of course it's the right tech in the right place. And of course, we should take the opportunity just to remind everyone that when it comes to clinical practice, appropriate communication skills, particularly when we're talking about working with children, are always going to be fundamental and taking the time to listen to the individual's story is going to lead you to the appropriate outcomes. Um, so I guess we should be cautious that we don't see technology as a easier way, if that's the right term to use, to getting good outcomes. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very good point. It's a tool. But although we've, we've talked a lot about how things have changed, but one thing I have kind of learned is that you've still got to do the history, the examination and the tests in that order always you can't skip it. Yet. Yeah. So the, the, the point is well made. Where technology could help is it, it's with follow-up of patients particularly. I mean, for example, if we had a cheap motion capture technology that a patient could take home and wear, I don't need to ask that patient to come up to a clinic appointment in six weeks' time to tell me how they're doing because I know the data's already been fed through to my computer, my phone probably, my smartwatch and and I can know how that patient is doing. It make, it's, it's much better for information for me as a clinician. And for you as a researcher, it's, it's a goldmine, right? That, that kind of data is, is, would be fantastic. But yeah, I guess we're not quite there yet. I mean, as always, the economics are, are a problem because anybody developing this technology wants to know how many people are they going to be able to sell it to. Uh, if you've developed a new knee replacement, there are hundreds of thousands of knee replacements done in the UK alone every year. But Kids' motion analysis is going to be a very small number, isn't it? Yeah, so we are, absolutely. we're always going to be up against that. One of the take-home messages for the audience would be to collaborate, to uh, have this interdisciplinary approach, not only for research, as we, we've discussed, not only as in education, we discussed already about educating uh, physiotherapists and podiatrists and trainees, but also in clinical practice with a lot of multidisciplinary approach. And hopefully our coming Orthopedic Research UK and Royal College of Podiatry online course will show that. We're certainly looking forward to the first webinar where we're going to discuss Flatfoot together with Stuart and going through into depth about the different aspects when it comes to diagnosis management and so on. Yeah, really looking forward to that. So, so I imagine you're going to cover clinical aspects of this, you two together, right? But trying to make this, I guess, the evidence base is really where you're going to be coming from. Yeah, I think we'll certainly give an overview of existing evidence. And I guess coming back to my earlier point, I can draw in some examples of evidence that's been published and I guess remind the audience the importance of being critical and not just looking at the, the takeaway messages because the takeaway messages often miss out the key ingredients. And certainly when we're dealing with flat feet, it's something that we need to be careful about. I also think there's scope to be a little bit contentious here because there's a need to change. And I think lots of change happening, but I recently listened to a podcast which was looking at or talking about orthotic modifications for children with flat feet and the individual that was presenting this podcast spoke about the need to have children in orthotics for long periods of time, possibly up until skeletal maturity. And I think that's a fundamental problem. We need to change the idea that if we're going to use orthotics, there will be a long-term intervention. These are devices that we use to modify or adjust load on the, the foot tissues. There's absolutely no reason why a child would need to be in those long-term. And that's maybe some of the 
points in the webinar that we'll try and prompt and encourage a bit of controversy so that we can begin to help people recognise that they don't need to do what's always been done. Excellent place to to end, I think. We're, we're running out of time. Gentlemen, both thank you very much for your time on this podcast. Really looking forward to the webinar. A bit of controversy. Fantastic. We're, we're all for that. You know, hopefully no blazing rows will break out. Can't guarantee it. But, you know, if so, it'll it'll be time well spent. So uh, to Stuart and to Bacalis, thank you so much. To the audience, thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Hope that's whetted your appetite to come along to the webinar. Uh, look forward to having your company on another podcast soon. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.